Well, <coughs> we want to persist and hopefully finish up tonight our study on the uh, authority, origin, and reliability of the scriptures um, with a look again at the attack on God's word that is coming from the textual critics or the higher criticism crowd is what is historically called, it is now called itself textual critics. <coughs> Julie, can you give me a drink, please? Whatever it is, it's not going away. <coughs> so remember that we talked about these five criteria of determining canonicity of Scripture, and we brought those introduced, and we found that they were the ones, very things that were under attack. Oh, sorry, honey, I didn't. I'm on uh, channel B, or no, channel A there. And so we find these five criteria, and we um, see the textual critics really going after all of them, um, and we're using these notes from one man's installation speech, who is the American champion, really, of introducing it into our seminaries. I think it's real important for us to recognize the seminary is a very and colleges, Bible colleges for that matter as well, are dangerous institutions. Um, not, they don't have to be, but they become that. And they become that because they are disconnected too many times from the authority of the local church. And they don't answer to us uh, sufficiently. And so it's off out there, it's away. Um, they have our young people's minds, they have the respectability of their degrees and their position. And accountability is a problem. And we have seen time and time again where colleges and seminaries have uh, conformed and they have uh, introduced error and it is one of the major platforms for many of the theological problems the church has encountered um, in modern era, and please realize it's modern era. The Bible College and Seminary is a very modern idea. Uh, typically, you would go in and serve under a pastor for a while, be trained by a church, and either sent out by that church into another parish, or you would um, take over that parish. And very much the model that Paul used, where come with me, I'm going to train you, um, in the midst of a ministry, a church ministry. And so you have the church involved in the process. When we send young men and nowadays young women to seminary and to Bible colleges, we are extracting them from the very environment that is necessary for their proper training. And that is a weakness of our system. And because of that, because we don't necessarily know, that's why we don't necessarily know the professors and the institutions. Um, I know the, the organizations, the institutions I graduated from. I know the professors that I was trained under. And that's why many pastors will direct young men into the schools where they came from because they know them. Um, but the problem is I know them from <laughs> 30 years ago. Those men are retired or not with us anymore. And so, uh, where are they now? And so, a lot of pastors lose track. They think, oh, this is still a good school. Um, I think Fuller Theological Seminary um, was a great example of that that started out very clear and then had all kinds of problems. 
um, Harold Lindsay, <coughs> Harold Lenzel came out of that and was turned over, and, and it, that turnover happened in a series of events over several years. Well, if you were a graduate somewhere in there, um, you could very easily have missed that. <coughs> and let's just be frank and honest, most of the time the student body isn't aware of what's going on in the faculty administrative level. And so they don't know what's coming down the pike, maybe after their graduation period. So at Union Seminary, though, this was the speech, and it was given to the whole student body, uh, which is a, a very powerful, in-your-face way to introduce a concept and a, and a body of approach to Scripture. And so we looked at the... Uh, Number one, about dealing with superstitions about the Bible. And remember, what we think of superstitions, what I've been talking about superstitions, um, that really came out even this morning in Jeremiah, um, is not what he meant. He meant by faith in the Bible. That's really what he, he used the word superstition, but when you break down what he was talking about as superstition, he's really talking about faith in the Scripture. Um, but because he used the word superstition and not faith in it, um, applause. We also looked at the last one of challenging author identification, um, that they used a literary approach to really um, undermine the idea that any of the books of the Bible are necessarily written by any of the title names. And they attack those and challenge them and really say, well, they were written quite a bit later and that's why all your prophecy is so well lined up because they were written after the fact. Um, and so it's easy to write prophecy when you're writing after the fact and pretending you're an author from 100 years ago and saying, you know, in 100 years this is going to happen. You know, and that was their contentions, particularly with the book of Daniel. <clears throat> and so, um, and we're going to talk about a little bit of that here in a minute. So they challenged authors. We talked about that last week. So we want to handle these last two areas of their assault on the Bible in the textual criticism category. <coughs> I do not know what got into my throat. First of all is inerrancy. And I want to talk about inerrancy because that is different than inspiration. Uh, you might say, well, one demands the other. Um, and to a degree, inspiration does demand inerrancy, but inerrancy, uh, attack inerrancy does not necessarily attack inspiration. And so let's talk about how they dealt with inerrancy, and of course, in the late 1800s, what was going on? <coughs> we have the strong development of Darwinian thought and a contention that with modern science, boy, <coughs> the Bible's errors were coming out. I got something really tickling my throat, so. And so they use science to attack the Bible. What kind of things are they going to attack? Well, they're going to attack things like, um, what's the smallest garden seed? Because Jesus said the mustard seed, the smallest, it becomes this great big tree. And well, since he used the superlative, therefore, that's a factual error because we know that there are seeds smaller than the mustard seed. Um, of course, there is a heavy-duty attack on the Genesis account 
Oh, good, something other than water. Maybe this will, what is it? Ooh. Am I gonna, my breath's going to smell better too? Okay. Yep. Turn it off. Um, so, again, the introduction was that inerrancy is really modern. That really isn't true. Um, I think when you go through all of God's word, you go through Psalms 119, your word is truth. The Bible has announced itself as true. And what they did, I'm going to erase these five points of rules of canonicity, because hopefully you've got them memorized. And so we're going to talk about, so they wanted to divide this. And this is going to show up a lot more in inerrancy. But they wanted to divide truth into categories. And so you want to have uh, areas of faith and practice. That is, uh, areas of faith would be theology, practice, of course, is, is areas of obedience and things of Christian living. And then they wanted to have um, factual information. And they wanted to distinguish these two. That it could have authority in the area of faith and practice and not be inerrant in the factual information that is giving. That all those numbers, all of those uh, population counts, the dates, the reigns of kings, um, all those kinds of things could be brought into question, um, including declarations about um, things that we can investigate scientifically. And so they're using this scientific approach, and of course the creation account came under the heaviest attack. Um, but also, actually it was until a little bit later that it was the heaviest attack. first heavy attack was on miracles. The second heavy attack was on prophecy. And then the third, um, <clears throat> what did I just say? Creation. Thank you. The Genesis account. And so they're going to attack miracles, and they begin to just tear them apart one by one by one and just say, well, this you know, didn't really happen. They either attribute it to... Um, allegory, that these are just stories to bring forth a, a concept or principle that they didn't really, I mean, after all, do donkeys talk? Come on, any thinking man would know that a donkey would never talk to a man. Uh, uh, but I think when you get to the area of miraculous, the whole idea, if it's reasonable, it's not a miracle. Would you agree with that, that those are counterpositioned? And so um, to say that a miracle has to be reasonable um, denies the definition of a miracle. Uh, the whole idea is that it's extraordinary. It is outside of the realm of our capability to do. And so we start to address things. And, and of course, what are the big miracles or the big workings of God in Scripture that come under this thing? Well, they attack the flood narrative. They, they uh, assault that very heavily. Um, they also deal with the Red Sea, crossing of the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt. And they address that. Of course, the healings and miracles of God's word, um, of, or of Christ, of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, and the healings and such that are in there. And they begin to address these. And so by the time um, the uh, 1950s or so, 
you have a lot of very conservative books being rewritten. So that, uh, and a lot of this was influenced by a guy named Schofield. And uh, he's going to attack the creation narrative, and they're going to introduce a lot of things called theistic evolution models. Which means that, um, and this was an attempt to meld the creation narrative with science of the day, so-called. And so we have all this contention going on, and it appears that science is winning. That, boy, there's just nothing in Scripture that makes sense. Now remember, in the turn of the century, around 1900, uh, what's missing in the area of prophecy that we have today? Nation of Israel. And they're like, come on, it can't, you know. And so we have a lot of assault on prophecy um, that is just uh, not even thinkable. And so we have no Israel. And we start reading some of those things. Well, how can the whole world watch two dead bodies in the streets for this period of time? Well, back in the 1900s, the whole world couldn't do that. Can you do that? You can do that. I mean, we've got cameras all, you, you can tap into, in fact, we're getting ready to put it in our security system that you can get on your laptop and watch what's going on here pretty soon. So we can do that today. It's a no-brainer. It's like, yeah, we can do that. No problem. I can watch some jungle camera, watch the jaguars drive, walk by in infrared light in somewhere in Africa or, no, South America. You know, and, you know, we don't even think of that. Well, in the 1900s, those kinds of statements a prophetic statement, oh, come on, how can that be? How can we, no one can buy or sell without this mark? How can they institute that, implement that? These things are outrageous. So they discounted them. And all the Old Testament prophecies, they, again, because they challenged the author identification, along with that, the date of the writing, they simply said they were written after the fact. And so it's easy to have prophecy after the fact. So this, with the attack on science of these events, so... We have the crossing of the Red Sea. No evidence. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And so, well, no, actually it was the Reed Sea. It was uh, just a mixture. And uh, these marshes that are up in the north area, of, north of the Dead Sea, but distinct from the Dead Sea, and everyone knew it. And there's, or I'm sorry, not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, distinct from it. Everyone knew it, and there's no way that Pharaoh's whole chariots got drowned in this much water. I'm pretty sure that the chariots and the guys could have waded across the same as Israel. And when they waded across, guess what? They were still in Egypt. The Bible says when they crossed the Red Sea, they were no longer in Egypt. Okay? So we brought into question that. It's not scientifically possible. We look at the Red Sea and the Egyptian side of the Sinai Peninsula. All of this was driven by an identification of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula by some witch in the 300s, Constantine's soothsayer. Says, oh, this is Mount Sinai, and takes, and they make a big fanfare, and this is Sinai. Um, it doesn't match any of the description of Scripture, and so there was a challenge of that whole scenario. You can't find this, you can't find that. Where is this? And in fact, in our Bibles, that's still the, the, the trip and you'll see, where is Mara? Question mark. Maybe right there. Where is Elim? Question mark. Maybe right there. But there's no question mark under Mount Sinai of Horeb. 
It says it's right down there. Well, it's not down there. It's over here in what's now Saudi Arabia. And so, um, why all the question marks on our maps? Because there's no locations along there that match up with them. Because the crossing isn't where the crossing is. Well, 1970s, here comes a guy named Wyatt, and he says this isn't right, and he goes and does, and back then you could get into Saudi Arabia and dig around, mess around. The Saudi government wasn't opposed to it. Um, and remember, this is when the Saudis and oil com- American oil companies were in close tie, and they were very pro-America, um, and the uh, Saudis weren't pumping their own oil. Uh, you really have just the beginning development of OPEC and all that. And so they're digging around there, and they find this blacktop mountain. And uh, what does everybody call it? Well, this is Musa. This is Moses, or, or Jabal Laws. This is the mountain of the law. This is the mountain of Moses. That's what they still call it today. And it's black. And it's in Saudi Arabia. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. And it's right where it's supposed to be. And they're finding obelisks. They're finding all this stuff. And, and then we find all this information but none of that was available. And so they're attacking all the miracles of the Bible. And once you can say, well, this just, isn't, this just didn't happen, and they start backing this up, then you get to the flood narrative. Well, it was just a bad flooding in that region, blah, blah, blah. And you start challenging all of it. And this is what they did. They started tearing apart using science. And sometimes on very small elements and sometimes very large elements. The, the difficulty here is that was science inerrant? That was the assumption. Science doesn't make mistakes. But we all know that science has made lots of mistakes all the time, especially when they get into something that you cannot bring into a lab and test over and over and over again. And history is something you can't bring into a lab. You can't repeat it. And so uh, we, we have to look at things in a much broader perspective. And when we look at the scripture through good science and some basic science principles, we find some incredible differences. Um, let's just throw some things out here. Let's just, and remember, they're attacking the Bible. Uh, let's consider the Bible compared to some other sacred writings. Um, the Bible says, what about the stars? Where are they? Are they close? Are they on the horizon? Where are they? They're in the heavens. They're far away. The Bible says they're way out there and they're stretched out. The Bible says that about the stars. You know what the Hindus say about the stars? They're torches that are out there on the horizon and that uh, the world is flat and triangular and the sun dips behind a giant mountain that's a thousand feet tall way out there and that the moon is larger than the sun. That's all in the Hindu writing. Now the torches, I'm sorry, the torches are the Muslim. And so in the Quran, it describes the stars as the torches that are out there. And they're all near, they're all terrestrial things. Um, only, of all sacred scripture, only the Bible describes the heavens as something that we scientifically identify as being way out there. Only that. And it describes the sun in comparison to the moon, the greater and the lesser, it, it, everything it describes, science and astronomy has concurred with. 
So in these large areas, the principles of thermodynamics, they're in the Bible. They're consistent with the scripture, that everything had to come together at one point. Well, what are the basic elements of good science? You have to have matter, energy, and time and space, right? Those are kind of the three elements of science that we're dealing with. And any good scientist will tell you that all, all elements have to be there all the time. That's the first law of thermodynamics. We've got to have all the elements together. You can't just start with one and not the other. Well, what do we have in the creation narrative? We have matter, time, energy, all bursting on the scene in one event called creation, which coincides with our concept of thermodynamics, with what sci basic scientific understanding. And so, but they didn't like that. They are still following uh, a Darwinian model, and they are taking their word for it that all of these things had to happen. They are taking the word for um, the geological evidence and the archaeological stuff that was going on, um, and they are pushing things. There is no such person as Pilate. Never anywhere was there a guy named Pilate. Can't find a guy named Pilate anywhere. That's a factual error. That was what they introduced. That's an error. And that's all they wanted was a few errors. And then lo and behold, after digging, 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 poof, what do they find? They find a piece of stone, and guess whose name is on the stone? A guy named Pilate, who was governor in the time of Jesus. And it is prominently displayed when you go to Capernaum by the sea. They will take every tour group right by that stone and point it out. The guy exists. So now that was true. Over and over and over again, we have had this happen. Uh, one of the things was um, uh, one of the uh, descriptions of what was uh, required, um, one of the tribute monies, that it said that, it had to be, that they provided 300 talents of silver. And when they did the archaeology, um, the documentation from, um, I think it was the Assyrian king, uh, I can't remember, was that they got 800 talents of silver from them, that the Jews paid 800 talents. I think it was Hezekiah, in times of Hezekiah. And so um, the Bible says 300 talents, and they dug up some stuff, and it said that they received 800 talents from the Jews. Oh, here's an error. Right? And so here it is. And so here's the proof. The Bible's got a, pro a fault. And now all we need is a few mistakes, and now we can, throw, we can introduce the whole idea that this isn't an error-proof book. Guess what they did? They dug a little bit more on what they find out. They found out in one of the reckonings, one of the letters, that 800 Assyrian talents was equal to 300 Jewish talents. They had two different measures. And that was documented. But instead of waiting to find that out, they published this big mistake in the Bible. Well, it wasn't. The mistake was on the archaeologists who jumped to conclusions because they wanted to find an error in the scriptures. And this goes again and again and again and again. But 
even to this day, when I encounter people who have had exposure to textual criticism, or even if they haven't, they'll say, well, what about all the mistakes in the Bible? And I'll say, what about them? Let's, let me hear them. They don't know, but they know this argument. They know this argument, but they don't know that most every one of these things has been debunked by further science, that science has been the problem, not the Bible. Archaeologists have been the problem, not the Bible. Astronomers have had some issues, but not the Bible. Okay, and so, uh, in fact, Pleiades, one of the groups of stars, the Bible says is being stretched out and um, people took issue with that. Astronomers took issue with it. No, because for a long time, Pleiades was considered the center of the universe. And they said, no, it's not. And now, what they're saying is that Pleiades is moving away from Earth at about, I don't know, like 1,500 miles a year or something like that. It's, being, it's going farther and farther away from it. Well, the Bible said that thousands of years ago. Job, you know. How do they know that? The Bible was accurate. And so um, all these attempts to, to undermine inerrancy just brought turmoil into the church. And because there wasn't enough science yet, it undermined everyone's trust of Scripture. So when we get to attacking creation, oh, we've got to come up with a model that fits science and lets us still have our Bible, and that's where theistic evolution started coming in. And that is that, oh, you know, by day, he meant ages or aeons or millions of years, not each day, 24 hours literal. Um, and we just denied the scriptures to compromise with science that was faulty. And so we um, find that now, um, we have a huge area of creation study. Uh, scientists are involved in extensively um, around the country to address um, this without theistic evolution. And so they're not promoting this anymore because it's flawed. The reason it's flawed is because evolution is flawed. And so the theistic part, to get back to your Bible, became a more reliable position lining up with the more science learns. And when we start finding genetic information and material that's supposed to be, have gone millions of years ago, still viable, we go, oh, well, this couldn't have been millions of years ago. There's no way it could be soft tissue still. But if it was a couple thousand years ago, say 4,000 years ago, yes, we could understand it. Well, that fits the flood narrative and the creation narrative. We find the sudden emergence of life, and everyone talks about the sudden emergence. Whoosh, that there wasn't this gradual, you can't go through the rocks and find a gradual increase in animal and plant life. You don't find it. You find suddenly, whoom, on one layer, there it all is. What does that tell you? It all came at once. It didn't gradually appear on the scene. There wasn't little life and then millions and millions and millions of years to full life. But we find this all this life just emerging all at once, which fits the creation narrative. But this is how they attacked inerrancy. Then we find once they got that under assault, 
And whether it was historical fact, archaeological fact, even these little numbers, of they, they went after all of it. And it seemed like they had really strong cases. And, but everyone advertised the errors, but no one advertised the corrections. The church wasn't exposed to it. Because the big journals, didn't, Time Magazine, didn't put it out there. Oops, they were wrong. Oh, look what we found. You go to Israel today, and they'll point it out to you. The Israelis will point it out to you. Oh, this is a place that they said didn't exist, and we dug, and there it is. Surprise, right where God's word says it was. And so um, there's a trustworthiness there that the Bible um, has produced. But they attacked inerrancy extensively. And, um, and that's... Uh, undermine so many people's confidence in the Bible. And that's why I need to recognize that when one version has something different than, a, than another, the Septuagint, for example, like we had this morning, um, like we had the example of how long was Israel in Egypt, those are important because this group is attacking the Bible and attacking Christianity through those discrepancies by ignoring the one and focusing on the other and pushing it and saying, ah, this is a mistake. Couldn't be. Couldn't happen. Okay. Then, the fourth area, it's number two in his list, but the fourth area I want to address is the attack on on inspiration. And this, this, these two areas came out extensively, especially in several of the seminaries um, that were pretty conservative, um, but they had liberal professors in them. And what did they want to attack? Well, they wanted to preserve their theology and practice. But because the inerrancy people had brought this factual information under attack, they were unwilling to say the Bible was inerrant, and therefore they were saying it couldn't be inspired. And so here's the verbiage that they used. Uh, Let's see, I'm going to erase this stuff. The verbiage they used was that This was revelatory, and this was non-revelatory. That the Bible has both in it, both revelatory and non-revelatory. Now, all revelatory means is that God revealed it to you. The origin is divine. And if God shows you something, is he going to lie to you? No. So these men gave some credence and said um, the revelatory scriptures where God, where the origin of the information is God, is true. However, within the Bible, there is non-revelatory information. That is, source is men. And now they began to distinguish. And what's the problem now? Who decides which is which? Well, the professors, the seminary and college professors, set themselves as being more knowledgeable. They could help you distinguish between these. And the students that were coming out um, were saying, well, there's revelatory and there's non-revelatory. Um, and we can have confidence in the areas that talk about our theology and our practice. But you can't because your theology is strengthened and is built upon miracles, including the most important miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you can attack anything once you say that 
there's some non-revelatory information. In other words, human-derived. And there's several areas of the Bible that they said, well, this is obviously human-derived. Um, one of them is passages in Ecclesiastes. Why? Because he says, here I went out there, and I did this, and I did that, and here's my wisdom. Um, here's what I tell you, that all is vanity, there's nothing new under the sun. And they said, well, you see, obviously this is from Solomon's experience, and this is not revelatory. God didn't reveal this. Um, and again, they're talking about inspiration where every word is spoken by God. And they said, well, obviously God didn't speak this to him because he's rehearsing for us his experience. And therefore, um, we're, we don't recognize that this is revelatory. This is, this is um, scripture, but it's non-revelatory scripture. And therefore, it, it is in a different category. And we approach it differently. And they're approaching Bible from two different views. Well, um, simply because something is based out of one's experience, where did Solomon get his wisdom from? God. How is it that he went through this? Um, it was not the experience that really moved him to the truth. It was the revelation of God to him. Um, and God can reveal things in a variety of ways. Um, and so uh, the other passage that we come to is when Paul says, this is not from the Lord, but from me. Remember that passage? Uh, Paul is saying, this is not from God, this is from me. Um, and he's talking about singleness, marriage, and things like that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you my opinion. Um, well, that's not revelatory, they said. And so it's in the category of non-revelatory. And so we approach it differently. It doesn't have authority over us. And the implication is that Paul himself didn't think it had uh, any authority over those people he's talking to. But if you read the passage, you'll find something very different. What Paul is saying is that if you want the full approach, if you want what's best, here is what's best. But it doesn't necessitate that this is the only position that you can live under. Um, God's grace is broader than that. In that. So if you want God's best, and this is what I teach in your premarital counseling, um, your, God's best is that you stay single and be active and you can go anywhere, do anything. Um, and uh, uh, you get to hang out at my house whenever you want and, and go wherever you please. You know, you're not responsible or accountable um, to have to be in a certain place because you're, other than your job probably, um, but you don't have that, the, that weight on your shoulders of a family to care for, and so you can minister to the Lord, and that could be your full attention, undivided. Um, but he says, that's my best. That's the best. But and in my opinion, you should strive after that. Well, in, in my opinion, in God's opinion, you should strive after that. But he knows what you are. You're a man. You're made out of dirt. You know, it's better to marry than to burn, he goes on to say. So his opinion wasn't uh, that you should remain single. The opinion is you should strive after God's best, but within God's plan, there are other acceptable things. And yes, I would prefer that everyone have God's best, but I also understand that God's plan and, and purposes 
are still worked out in your life under uh, better and good. <laughs> There's good, better, and best, and none of those are sin. And if you want to marry your virgin, that's good. In Paul's opinion, there's something better, but it's not wrong. And he was expressing his opinion not as a matter of teaching us faith and practice, but rather of saying that uh, you would be best to go after God's best. God has revealed his best, um, and to be as I am is what would be best, because I have the liberty to go wherever. The other apostles have Wives they got to take care of, they have, they have family, they're tied down. I'm not. I can go wherever I want. I can make a few tents and uh, make up my living and take care of things. But they take this now and they abuse this passage to say, see, this is non-revelatory. This is an example. And so how much of God's word is non-revealed from God? Well, now it's not God's word. It is man's word. And we begin to tear down inspiration. And that's the first crack in the door. And this is what happened in a lot of our college and seminaries, is that was the crack. This distinguishment between matters of faith and practice and other matters that are more factual in nature. And that difference between revelation and non-revelation. And so certain books of the Bible were left over to non-revelatory. Certain passages were, well, that's non-revelatory. It's just that man's view um, and significant portions. Well, as time went by, pretty soon you could say pretty much any part of the Bible is non-revelatory, and that's what happened. And so we're attacking the inspiration, verbal inspiration. Well, God didn't dictate the Bible. Well, nowhere in our teaching did we say God dictated to men that is different than verbal inspiration we are saying that people still wrote in their own style they still had their own vocabulary they still had their own personality in the writing but God influenced them so that every that's what inspiration is it's not a dictation it is that God influences them so that every word they wrote down is the words God wanted written down What they were making inspiration is dictation. And therefore, um, you know, there's no way this was dictated, no way that was, and they started attacking the definition of inspiration as well. And pretty soon you had pastors being pumped out of these seminaries that didn't believe in verbal plenary inspiration, and there was a big fight, particularly when we get into the 30s, 40s, 50s. It was a huge battle. Um, that largely conservative Christianity lost. And that's why most of our colleges and seminaries today are dangerous places of high liberal, higher criticism and liberal theology. Um, And very few um, are balanced and and fundamental um, without going into the extreme of being um, King James only and, and... and burrowing into really a, an area of, of, um, of uh, what's it called? Uh, I'll think of the term, of a theology that basically isolates itself and, is, and doesn't see what's going on and just 
It says all everything that's not us is evil. Um, well, we want to have a balance that recognizes these attacks, has good argumentation to address them, and has a high confidence in God's word. And, and these kinds of studies are necessary to do that. Um, but I want to share with you a quote and a position um, of the revelatory and non-revelatory. Um, and this is a dangerous one. It sounds really good, and this is how it is. Uh, this is what was going on in the Fuller Theological Seminary, that the revelational matters defined as matters that make men wise unto salvation are inerrant, without mistake. And that if the phenomena bore this out, loyalty to biblical authority would demand that we define inerrancy accordingly. This, this is his slight correction that he wanted to introduce. That there should be a slight correction at Fuller Theological Seminary that inerrancy only applies and inspiration only applies to revelatory scripture, not non-revelatory scripture. And so... First and Second Chronicles, First Saint Kings, all your historical narratives, well, those were just historians writing down what happened. It wasn't revealed by God. And thus, they could discount if kings' lives and reigns didn't line up. Um, and that was one of the other big things they used. Oh, the reigns of the kings aren't aligned between Chronicles and Kings and, and what we know historically happened. But then we find out, lo and behold, what was going on? Kings were living longer than their reign. And so they were still kings without being the king. Okay? Um, and so their son would take over. They would still live. And so one was going by their lifespan. And then the overlap, uh, we learned later on by looking at some historical or some ancient documents of how did they figure out a king's reign. Um, well, you had a lot of overlaps. And that's why... Are you talking about the king's life, or are you talking about his reign? And so, um, you know, we associate, well, one king dies, the other king becomes, the, the, his son becomes king. Well, not all the time. Sometimes the king was too old, and the son would become king, and they would be co-regents sometimes, and there would be this overlap, and we, we learned that later on. And so there were mechanisms to deal with these contradictions in the Bible. And, but they didn't want to address those. They didn't want to investigate those. They just wanted to throw them up and say, oh, see, it's non-revelatory, and so there's going to be errors, and it's, once there's errors, where's its authority? Once it's just the writing of men and not the writing of God, where's its authority? It's no different than reading any of these books. You're just reading a man's writing that is somewhat dependable but has these errors. Well, again, most of these guys historically were completely um, isolated. And I'm going to use that word isolate, even though they were the majority of Christianity, were isolated from the Septuagint in the Greek Orthodox Church and the Eastern Church. And so their scriptures, even to this day, most conservative theologians in our circles of the majority are still, I was until this study, really, well, a few months before the study, because that's what 
brought this study forward. Um, I've not been exposed to it, and now I go to this as well. What does this passage say over here in the Greek? Septuagint. And this morning was an example there in Jeremiah. Here's a passage that we fight over and say, this makes no sense, we don't understand it. And then we find out, well, it's not talking about a woman, it's talking about the land of Israel, which is feminine. So you have a feminine noun that is providing safety for the men who walk around in it. And it's not talking about women defending men in the land. And it doesn't, it's not talking about a woman producing a man. I mean, there's no, I, there's no concept of a conception or birth in that whole verse or anywhere in the chapter. Um, but rather, it's talking about God has created that land for those people. And, and that earth, that land, that place is in the feminine. So here's a, this place that God has created as a safe place for the men of Israel to reside in. Problem solved. But we don't have any of that because we're not exposed to the whole Eastern uh, scriptures, the Septuagint. Okay? And so... Um, some of that would have resolved a lot of these issues. So isolationism, which most of our churches are going to now, they don't know how to engage this, so they go to isolation. Just use this version, it's the only safe one. Well, that position is unsafe. And I hope I've shown that to you in this study. As soon as you go to that position, only this one Bible is the Word of God, now you've set yourself up that I can, with a handful of verses, just destroy your whole faith in the Bible. Because I can show you where it's got a mistake. And we gave you several of those examples. And so, um, rather, we need to have a position that says, if we take encompass all of God's work of preservation globally, all of it, we can come to God's word with a high confidence. It is inerrant. The preservation facet of it isn't just in one branch of the tree, but the whole of the tree, and we need to be exposed to all of it. And then suddenly, these challenges to inspiration and inerrancy just melt away. They really do. There's no dilemma here. And where there is, we find that with more research, more study, more archaeology, more investigation, the Bible has consistently held its own over and over and over again. So please recognize that. But this attack is real. It has been going on now for 100 years, and it is the dominant position in most of our, uh, most seminaries in this country and the world, Europe particularly. And you've seen where that went to. And so um, we want to... Uh, be aware of it, and also well-equipped to simply address it without being ignorant of it. Okay. Yes? I, I can't say where they got that idea, but his presentation... Um, was simply that the early church fathers just were selective in what they identified as authoritative, and he 
associated that with not believing in inerrancy, which is a misnomer. Because if you go back through history, um, even in the very early church, and even the Bible itself, there is a declaration that there sh- that there is that this is a a, uh, a a holy writ that has divine origin and is completely trustworthy. Um, and even into the awakening period of science, where you have Galileo and those people, um, we realize now that here the religious people were condemning these guys when these guys are really just confirming Isaiah and Job and, and uh, some of the Psalms and that were saying exactly what those astronomers were saying. It was, but it wasn't an issue uh, and as true with Newton, too, and several other scientists that the church attacked when they were actually confirming things because the church was rife with superstition. But again, when we talk about the church, we're talking about Catholicism and its abused condition. Um, and so there is, I think, adequate evidence. I think um, one of these guys uh, goes through the history. I think MacArthur goes through that. In, I think it's in this book, Why I Trust the Bible, um, where he talks about the historical... I've read so many so recently, I get them confused sometimes, but I think it's in there that uh, how over the centuries there is evidence that they believe that there's inerrancy. So these guys were wrong, but they only looked at one slice, one sliver, brought it forward as the d- predominant position, and state claim that there is no inerrancy before the modern era, which are, we see it in, the Bible says it is um, such. Okay. Any other questions or comments closing up this study? They have one rabbinic school, another rabbinic school, another rabbinic school, and of course you had the Sadducees and Pharisees in Jesus' time. What was Jesus' approach to them? Fundamentally, that the issue wasn't the scriptures they were dealing with, but their approach to it, what they believed, and they were inserting in the scriptures. And that's really what these guys' problem was. Their problem really wasn't the Bible. Their problem was their approach to it. They didn't want to acknowledge it forthrightly, that what it says it meant. And they didn't want to submit to it. And that was science's problem all along. Science, the issue, underlying issue, isn't the discoveries they were making in their research. It was the approach. They didn't want to acknowledge God. And what does the Bible say? In in their darkness, in their evil heart, they contend that everything has always been the way it is and will always be the way it is. Um, The sin the New Testament points to at scientists is... Constancy. That is an underlying error in most all science is the assumption of constancy. And the Bible says that is their error, is the assumption that everything has always been the way it is, and so we can use all of these things to track time. Erosion, um, radioisotopes, um, you name it. And they're all based upon the assumption of constancy. And uh, even the speed of light isn't constant. It's slowing down. 
Second law of thermodynamics, everything's slowing down, which means that everything was here and has degraded since. Everything. And that is contrary, that's a fundamental law, contrary to the whole concept of evolution that things can elevate themselves. When a law says everything degrades. Okay. Genetic information has been fascinating, the stuff that's come out in the last year or two, um, that they're saying that there's no way that humanity, the human genome is more than a few thousand years old. They're, they're saying that it's not possible. And we all share, going back to an original couple, um, and so, or family group. And so, you know, the, the modern genetic information is just phenomenal when they've started bringing it out. But you don't hear it emphasized by anyone that suddenly they're saying, no, we're, we can't be even, we can't even be hundreds of thousands of years old. Humanity, human, the human genome can't even be that old less than 10,000 years that they can trace back our genetic information because of the, there would have to be a different diversity for it to go farther back. Humanoids. Yes. Anything that along that line, scientists will poo-poo. If there was an original, if there was a single original organism, yeah. But it couldn't. But it couldn't be. Yeah. So there's some exciting things going on. What is fascinating is it's interpreted, how it's interpreted. And um, you can see the underlying resolve of much of the scientific community is we want to deny God existence. And constancy is huge. Yeah, it is their religion. That there is no God. There cannot be a God. Because if there is, I'm in trouble. Because I deny him. If he's a God and he created, I must acknowledge him and deal with him. They're not willing to do that. So the science is there, and, and creation science is a big, big area right now. Well developed, has, and, but recognize it's new. That is, it's been developed in my lifetime. And so colleges and seminaries were battling in the 60s the creation narrative in the science departments. And very few held the ground on the biblical narrative. Very few. Uh, at least it had large science departments, developed science departments. Cedarville was one of them at the time, and uh, so I was very blessed to be in a place with professors that were fully committed to creation account of scripture from chemistry and biology perspectives, and what a difference that makes. Okay? Um, good study. 
hope it helps, and I hope uh, it uh, strengthens our, our realization of God's word and what it comes to you, what, what it took to get it to you, and why you should be a little more aware of what's around. In it. Okay, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And Lord, we see the assault from within our own ranks, so to speak, although we know that they, while they are numbered uh, uh, with us, they're not of us. For they would deny the power of your word, they deny the truth of your word, and thus they end up denying you. And we see that evident in the world around us, um, in church after church, that will compromise not just facts, but faith and practice, um, and that have tolerated and even condoned sin within their ranks. And we pray that we might be of a different sort, that we might be willing to take firm stand on your word, uh, not in an isolated way, but rather with our fully aware of the fullness of your preservation work and that we might um, recognize that you are a God that has given us reason and that we are here to investigate, to discover a matter and to be wise before we come to our conclusions based upon uh, incomplete data. And so Lord, give us that desire to learn and to investigate and to fully engage ourselves in your world, that this creation doesn't belong to scientists, but to you, and that you know it well. And Lord, that we want to discover it. And we pray for your help in that. And we thank you for all that has been revealed in these last days that leave men without excuse, that if they really want to know the truth, that they could find the information, they can find the data to confirm your word they might trust in you. And so we thank you for that testimony. And we know that that testimony is a powerful indictment against our society in these last days. So we trust in you and we wait upon your return in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.